My guest today is none other than Richard Thorpe, an international level rugby player and now property investor, developer, and just all round entertaining speaker too, actually. I've shared the uh, shared the uh, stage with him a few times and it's always exciting. Thank you very much, Richard, for joining me today. Yes, yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation to speak on your podcast. Now, we've got a funny little story about how we met, don't we? Oh, don't, don't <laughs> tell that one. Please, please don't. No, I have to, I have to. <laughs> so, Richard's a rugby player, as I mentioned, and he's quite large, like rugby players tend to be. And I went to my very first property meet, the Central London property meet, and it was my very first time. So, of course, I was trying to be really cool and um, meet people and network at the end. So, we all went to the pub afterwards. And being an equal person, not wanting men to buy me drinks, I went up to Rich and said, can I buy you a drink? And he said, yeah, sure. I'll have whatever you're having. So I walked up to the bar and the logic inside my head said, I drink half pints of lager, therefore Richard will drink half pints of lager. (laughs) Anyway, I took this little thimble of a glass over to Richard (laughs) and it virtually disappeared in his hand and he went, okay, that's the first time I've ever had a half pint. And I think it's the only time I've ever had a half pint as well. I mean, it's just not really the sort of thing that trying to portray some sort of macho character that you do. You know? No, I felt I felt so stupid. I felt like I was being cheap or something, but I wasn't. I was just trying to stop myself getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, well, we've since been able to have a real drink together. We? we have indeed, um, yeah. Since then. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you very much, Richard, again. But look, just tell us a bit of your background. And rugby, obviously, that's, that's a very exciting background to have come from. So tell us a bit about how you got into rugby and then further along into Yeah, rugby. sure. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of my start point, I guess. So I, I started playing rugby as a kid, absolutely fell in love with the sport. And uh, pretty much immediately, so probably from the age of 10, 11, was just made up in my mind, I'm going to be a pro rugby player. That was That was it. Like, there was never any doubt. There was never any sort of second-guessing it. That was always what I was going to do. So throughout my teens, I just spent a lot of time just sort of training, going out running, doing as many press-ups as I could and all of that in order to try and be as competitive as I could. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I wound up leaving school, joining um, a team called London Irish, which is a premiership rugby team. Uh, well, it was at the time, anyway. It's actually in the championship right now. They're, uh, they've been struggling over the last couple of years. Is not that si- since you left? Not since I left, no. <laughs> For the record? To, just happens to coincide with when I left. Um, not, not because of it. Um, but, yeah, joined them in their academy. Spent uh, a couple of years training, learning my, learning my trade uh, in their academy. Moved into their first 15. And spent a total of nine seasons with London Irish which was great. Uh, so, I mean, I think it was in 2008, we were in a premiership final, where sadly we lost out to Leicester. Um, and 2007, so the year before, we were in a, a European Cup semi-final. Um, so we, we had some great successes um, at London Irish. I uh, I then decided to move on to uh, another team called Leicester Tigers, the team that we had actually lost to in the premiership. Yeah, so, yeah. And, uh, Stick with the winners. And that season actually went on to win the premiership. Fantastic. Which was great. So I managed to get myself a premiership winner's medal, which was which was great. Um, but then, like many athletes, um, struggled with a, a couple of injuries, one in particular, uh, which nearly ended my career, um, but was able to make make a comeback from it. Um, but sadly, all my aspirations of playing for England had kind of gone away. I was yeah. starting to get a little bit too old and had too many serious injuries. I was playing for uh, London Welsh, where I, I spent the last three years of my playing career. 
and um, and got the call up to go and play for Canada, which was amazing. Um, how? Why Canada? Uh, well, my mother's Canadian, mm-hmm. so she came over here as an eighteen-year-old on a gap year, met my dad, and never went home. Um, and it was always kind of in the back of my mind. It was, yeah, well, why not? It might might Absolutely, have a, an opportunity yeah. to go and play in a World Cup, or uh, or at least just get some international uh, rugby under my belt. Um, and uh, towards the back end of my career, it just started to make a lot of sense. So I, I went and met up with the Canadian team. Uh, was able to go with them to the 2015 Rugby World Cup, which was amazing. What an experience! Yeah, um, I've been I've been fortunate enough to play at Twickenham a number of times during my um, during my uh, domestic career. Um, but uh, sadly, Canada didn't play at Twickenham. But we did play at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Uh, so that was my first ever game of indoor rugby. Because they've got one of those roofs that you can close over the entire stadium. How fair and, weather! Um, exactly, yeah. So uh, they they had the they had the, the roof closed for our game against Ireland, and uh, yeah, so I can say so I've, no mud. I've had an international game of indoor rugby, which is quite uh, quite quite remarkable. It's all too clean. Sadly, the mud's still there. Oh, is it? Um, okay, but it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty clean, pristine pitch. So yeah, yeah, it's not quite the 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 muddy bogs that you play in when you're uh, when you're a teenager and a kid. Um, but that was that was a great experience, um, and retired uh, at the end of that season. So uh, in 2016, hung up my boots from what was a 13 year career, which is quite long. Player. It's quite young, uh, long actually for a rugby player, isn't it? Given the injury rate. Yeah, I mean the average retirement age is is just continually coming down. I mean when I started back in 2003. Um, there were guys that were sort of 37, 38. I think one of the guys, Mike Catt, who, who won the World Cup with England back in 2003, he was playing with London Irish, at London Irish with me. I think he was like 39 or something. At the, yeah, by the probably time old finally, finally for rugby, his, yeah. uh, from, from a rugby player's yeah. perspective. Absolutely, but it was kind of the norm back then. But the way the game's gone, because if you, if you take rugby union, it's only been professional since 1995. So prior to 1995, professional rugby players, if you can even call them professional, had other jobs. So, I mean, some of your listeners may remember like the 95 World Cup and you'd have um, uh, the Underwood brothers playing out out on the wing. Will Carling, a name that most people will know. Um, Jeremy Guscott. These guys had other jobs. You know, it wasn't their full-time vocation and, and, uh, and job. Since the game went professional, now everyone's training full-time. So and everyone's getting, getting big. bigger. Everyone's getting faster. The hits are getting more dynamic. So when I was at when I was at Leicester, uh, they'd done a, a little piece of research where they said that a, a, a high high impact collision on the rugby field is the equivalent of a thirty mile an hour car crash. So yeah. you're watching a game of rugby, see a big hit, about the same as a thirty mile an hour car crash. But then you consider that you're putting yourself into me being a back row forward was quite a high impact position I'm putting myself in probably 10 to 15 of those at least a game you start to think god that takes a real toll on your body Absolutely. it starts to really stress your body um, so those ages are coming way down from 38 39 your average retirement age would be just under 35 and I got out at 32 um, so I mean I was in a really fortunate position I, I decided to retire on one one reason being that I wanted to try and save my body. Yeah. I'm going to not And let's a... say your ears and nose are in incredibly good condition <laughs> for probably a rugby means, player. <laughs> yeah, probably means I just wasn't abrasive enough on the... No, on the maybe, maybe, no, but I you're got, completely intact. <laughs> I, got, I got really lucky, actually. I mean, I, I, I had broken my nose a, n- a number of times, but it always stayed straight. Um, my right ear's got a little bit of cauliflower to it, but not that 
anyone would really notice. I can't notice. I kind of did all right. I yeah. mean, I've got more more scars on me than fingers and toes, um, some of which are quite horrendous. Um, but they're all they're all beneath the uh, beneath the clothing, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you're not going to you're not going to get through a, a a rugby career without getting some pretty serious injuries. It's just the nature of it. Um, so I decided to get out earlier rather than risk doing another couple of years. Most players end up being forced to take another two-year contract because they haven't got another option. No. Um, or even if they think they do, it's, it's probably the reality is that it's not there. And it's it's hard because it's always, it's very good money. It's hard to turn that down. So to have been in a position where I can actually say no no to a contract and yes to let's start my the next chapter of my life was a real privileged position to be in. But let's... Um, um, Let's clarify on the money. It's not footballer money, is it? <laughs> we discussed this once on a panel. And yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd obviously it on depends the, on the level of uh, where the footballer, who the footballer is playing yeah. with. But um, this I'd is say, what people uh, don't that, understand. That's a, that's a double-sided coin, right? <laughs> because on the one hand, I, I, I feel it's a little bit unfortunate that I wasn't a pro footballer because rugby players earn in a year what football, some footballers are earning in a week. Right, um, you get very few rugby players that are making millions of pounds a year. It's I think the average Premiership salary is about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year. Very good salary, but when you consider that some footballers are earning that a week, yeah. it uh, it just doesn't even compare. And their hair's so, in place the whole match. Hair's in, <laughs> hair's in place the whole time. Yeah, you, you get to cry and roll around on the floor if, if everyone treads on your toes. And there's no scars on Ronaldo's we're, body because we've all seen it. Well, there you go, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, yeah. So, so, so on the, on the one side of the coin. That uh, that sounds a little bit unfortunate that I wasn't good at football as opposed to rugby. But then you start to look at what happens when people leave football versus what happens when people leave rugby. It seems to be within pre- professional sport, uh, generally, the more money you make, the more likely and the quicker you'll become bankrupt once you, once you leave the game. So the, the statistic that many people are, are kind of aware of with professional football is that 60% of uh, Premier League footballers go bankrupt within five years of retiring. Incredible. And then you made a really interesting point uh, last time we spoke about this, that it's not just the bankruptcy. There are other issues yes, that the then follow on. Yeah, exactly. Exa- exactly. If you're, if you're a 20-something-year-old footballer, you're a millionaire, you're, you're pulling in over 100 grand a week, um, what sort of girlfriend are you going to have? What sort of wife are you going to have? What's going to be the expectation of your friends? What's going to be the lifestyle that you're accustomed to? So all of these things will just lend itself. If you end up going bankrupt, a very high chance that you're going to end up getting divorced. Very high chance that you're going to end up with a dependency on either alcohol or drugs. Gambling, um, yeah. Considering the nature of professional sport, the highs and lows of it, um, gambling, mm. as you just mentioned, yeah. is a massive one. Uh, for current sportsmen, as well as retired ones, gambling seems to be a, absolutely prolific. Hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that in itself can lead to bankruptcy. Um, has done many times over over the course of history. Um, so, it's, uh, so it's quite worrying. But just to go back to that point of the more money you make, the more likely you are to go bankrupt, uh, and the quicker that that happens. Uh, if you flip over to the United States, uh, it's nearly 80% of NFL, that's American football, nearly 80% of them go bankrupt within two years no of retiring. Way. And they're the highest paid of all sports people, they're, aren't they? Or the, they're baseball, or thereabouts. Baseball's yeah, up there. Yeah. That, that kind of go, really leads the, leads the charge. Uh, basketball's not, not dissimilar. 
from American football in terms of how long it takes you to go bankrupt. Um, so it's so it's really worrying. So to so to flip myself onto the other side of that coin, that hypothetical coin I was chatting about. Yes, it's disappointing not to have made the absolute millions from the sport that I was playing. Um, but on the flip side. It actually incentivizes you to work hard whilst you're playing, to invest in your career post your professional sports career, um, and uh, to invest diligently and everything else. Um, And I guess as well to to probably have an ego with a little bit more control around it. Not to say that rugby players don't have egos, because they certainly do. <laughs> but uh, if, um, if, if, if I, I think with a with a with a massive earning um, with the with the massive earnings of football, that can really allow egos to get out of Absolutely. hand, which can have a, a serious effect when you yeah. come out of the game. Yeah, and it's that if you if you don't earn the millions, you don't lose the millions. It's more even. And you were really careful about how you invested your money throughout your rugby career or certainly Mm. in the latter stages of that. So just talk Mm. us through how you worked out that you had to actually protect uh, your income and your, your, the next phase of your career. Yeah. So I, so I I got into, I I started taking sort of investment seriously about the time where I signed my first real contract. And how old were you then? Uh, I was 20. Okay. Uh, so from about 20 years old, I, I saw, right, well, I've got probably 15 years of playing in front of me. I can earn really well, but it's never going to be enough to um, to just retire and never have to do anything again. Which I think of what, what a lot of young kids that go into pro sport, they may not necessarily think that far ahead. Uh, a, lot, a lot of them certainly don't. But that happened to coincide with, um, with 2000, it was about 2005, 2006, um, when you could borrow... Um, 100% of the value of a property from the bank to go out and buy a house with. Um, so I, without really having any deep understanding of investment, uh, I, I started to take an interest in it. I started to read some books and and, and so on. Um, but with, with very much being a, an amateur, uh, fell into property. Went out and bought a house with none of my own money. Um very quickly rented out a couple of the rooms to a couple of the players, saw that all of a sudden I've got this p- some passive income coming in. So this is amazing. Um, moved out of the place, rented the whole thing out, um, went and bought another one, and just kind of went on repeat. Um, then 2008 hit, and I think the fact that you could borrow 100% from the bank probably played a big part of that. Yeah, slightly. <laughs> um, that's ultimately what the subprime crisis in America exactly. was, Repackaging was all about. Those, yeah. um, it was effectively replicated over here. Um, but because I didn't need to sell, I didn't need the money, it was a paper loss uh, on the uh, capital value of the properties that I owned, but the rental income kept coming in. And I just thought, well, this is great. I've still got the money coming in, yet properties are cheaper. Um this is great. Started to un- understand property in a little bit more depth. And that's when I started to move into sort of refurbishments because at that point I was just buying stuff already ready to rock and roll, um, turnkey. Uh, let's just chuck tenants into them. Um, then started to get into a bit of refurbishment. And uh, so I'm now sort of 25, 26, starting to get towards the prime of my rugby career. Um, but really thinking property more than anything else was the thing that was 
that was really holding me, uh, holding on to me, holding my interest. I'd experimented with some other, some other things. Yeah, you've done some other um, education too, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. so I've, I've trained as a, um, uh, I've, I've studied psychology at university, I've studied psychotherapy as well, a certificate in uh, psychotherapy, uh, studied as a um, financial advisor. Um, a professional sport career is great because it gives you the time <laughs> to be able to do these things. You can't train for eight hours a day, Monday through to Friday, and then go and play a game on the weekend. You physically can't. Your body can't hack it. So it's um, uh, it lends itself really neatly to studying outside of the game. Uh, the thing that I still can't quite put my finger on is why the majority of players don't take advantage of that. They just simply don't. Um, I was certainly guilty of not doing it as much as I probably could, but um, but I did take advantage advantage enough to build a business that I was able to retire from the sport on, um, and that was that was in property. So um, having experimented with uh, financial advising, going into wealth management, um, flooded with um, uh, desktop trading as well, um, and uh, a few other bits and pieces. Property was just always there; it was just ticking along in the background. Um, so I decided, right, I want to be a property developer. That's what I want to do. Uh, and as soon as that business is at the stage where I c- it can replace my um, current income, uh, I'll retire from rugby and move into property. Um, and that's effectively what I did, albeit that 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 aim of being a property developer did shift and, and change slightly, um, So, which leads, leads us up to now. Uh, so I, I retired in 2016 as a, as a lender. Um, so with uh, a mixture of my own capital, family capital, investors' capital, um, we lend to property developers, and that's the core of our business. Um, and uh, and that happened to coincide with uh, with me having been to a World Cup, and it was just a, gr- a great note to end pro sport on. Yeah, exactly. Ending on a high and going into uh, what is a, a very buoyant market. So with the property market rising and you entering into the lending market in a, in a rising market, that must have been quite exciting. Did it match the highs of, of rugby or was that hard to replicate? Um, it, it is hard to replicate. And it's um, it's something that every athlete retiring needs to, needs to kind of come to terms with. Like the nature of a, a professional sports career is that you play a game every week, which is like absolute elation. Whether you win or lose, uh, you're performing a very physical task with a load of your mates. Uh, there's going to be a lot of emotion behind it. You really care about it. Those sort of things have an emotional effect on you. Um, and when you've done it for so long, your body becomes so used to it. Um, not only the emotional side, but of course the physical side as well, because you're training every day. So you're fit, you're healthy, you're incentivized to eat well, not drink alcohol, not do any other sort of illicit half activities. <laughs> so you actually do a bit of favor yeah, with a exactly. half pint. Yeah, exactly. I think training See? the following yeah. day. I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so once, you, once that stops, you leave that entire environment behind. So you leave all of your peers that are a similar sort of age, similar sort of values, and uh, and you go into the real world. Very often in your 30s, very often at the same level someone in their early 20s is, you've kind of missed out on a decade's worth of real-world experience, climbing the greasy uh, rungs of corporate yeah. ladders and so on. Um, I've got friends that have gone into the corporate world and their bosses, 
five years younger than them, six years younger than them. And that can be quite hard to take. That's really hard on the ego. When you've been a professional athlete, you've been admired, revered. And all of a sudden, you've lost your identity and you become someone in the corporate world sitting at a desk. It must be really, really difficult. I think that's what a lot of athletes really struggle to come to terms with. Um, And I think that that will certainly contribute to depression rates. So you've got um, uh, more than a 50% chance of becoming depressed within five years of retiring from professional sport. Uh, different sports have slightly different um, different rates, but the average would be you've got a more chance of becoming depressed than not. Hmm. Um, Shocking. Which is, which is understandable, probably. Yeah. Those highs um, and lows are really hard, as you were saying. Those highs and lows are so hard to replicate in real life. They are. Yeah, and I, I, I think and the, the area that I've had to do the most work in is is managing ego, um, because you you come out as a senior player in your early thirties, you're a senior player in the team that you're playing for. Everyone that you're playing with, the majority of the guys that you play alongside, are younger than you. They look up to you. You're an inspirational figure. You're the one that speaks in meetings. You're the one that everyone listens to. You're the one whose opinion matters. That ends immediately. Uh, either through choice or very often due to injury, particularly in rugby, uh, and you go into the corporate world, now you've got guys that are younger than you who are more senior than you are. That is such a hit on the ego. Couple that with, all of a sudden, people don't want your autograph anymore. Uh, your your name's not being mentioned in the uh, in the newspapers. You're not on TV anymore. It's uh, it's a, it, The ego is a real hard thing to try and to try and gain control of when you exit professional sport. And how much support is there with uh, the coaches and the management in helping you prepare for that shift? Is there any at all? Yeah, there is. Absolutely there is, yeah. So the um, uh, the associations, the, the professional sporting uh, associations like the Rugby Players Association, the RPA, um, the Professional Footballers Association, the PFA, uh, the PCA, Cricket Association and so on, all have their... Uh, respective programs to help players with that with that transition uh, element. There's a charity called X Pro set up to help um, uh, retired Premier League footballers. A charity to help Premier League footballers sounds ridiculous, but I think we can all understand after what we've been talking about why it's required because um, there absolutely is a need for yeah, it. I hope the footballers contribute generously to that. <laughs> Well, quite, yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they do, um, and uh, ultimately, it comes down to the individual players during their career and their willingness to actually get involved, to take ownership, and uh, go and make it happen for themselves. Because you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink. Yeah. And ultimately, it's it's your future. It's not your manager's future, and. Yeah. You you have to actually understand what it is that you're doing because there's not going to be somewhere someone there managing your life for you forever. You have to take ownership. It's yours. It, it, it exactly yeah, and I mean particularly in football, um, you you find that the 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 people around prof- professional footballers such as the agents, particularly the agents, um, but then other envir- um, advisors, parents, even um, the clubs themselves. Uh, they're not necessarily that incentivized to get these players thinking for themselves, making decisions outside of off off the off the football pitch. Um, because if you're just one hundred percent focused on playing, you are going to play better. 
therefore you're going to earn more. And that's ultimately what these advisors are, are interested in. Um, so, I mean, there are stories of retired footballers uh, going away on their first holiday, not knowing how to get through airport security um, or the check-in desks, because from the age of 14, their club has held their passport. They've, they've never had to use their passport because they've always flown everywhere with their club. Um, it's just ridiculous. Sim- simple skills. Uh, there are the other, particularly in football and particularly with the sports that are higher earnings, guys that don't know how to do their laundry. Because it's something as simple as that. Yeah. Because their clubs have always That's understandable. They say, well, they close the club. The clubs just wash it for them, give it to them the following day. Yeah, they need them to be 100% focused. They need them to be 100% focused. Exactly. But they do have downtime, as you were saying. And that's when instead of playing FIFA on the Xbox, they should be uh, educating themselves about. uh, various investment strategies and not just property, but property has been a great one for you because it's allowed you now to be completely uh, financially reliant on on yourself and your business. Yeah. And how are you finding the market right now, given that it is more challenging and you're a lender? Yeah, quite. Um, so I'm a so I'm a second charge lender predominantly. Um, just so explain we'll sit- to us what that means for those who don't know. So a, a property developer will find themselves a site. Uh, if they don't have enough money to buy it and build it themselves, uh, they will take finance. They'll usually their first port of call will be to go to the bank. The bank will loan them a certain percentage of the value of that site, um, usually uh, giving you most of, if not all, of the build cost as well. But there's always going to be a surplus, and I, I, t- I try to live with that surplus that the bank haven't haven't uh, lent to. So the bank will lend on what's referred to as a first charge. They have the first charge, first legal ownership of that site. If something goes wrong, the bank get all of their money back first. That's the first charge. Um, we tend to live in the uh, in the second charge space, so it will be additional capital um, that a developer can't get from the bank. It's called Do you go up to hundred percent, or what's typically your sweet spot? Well, this will this will lead me on to okay. the, to the answer to your question. So we will live in that that equity space. Um, if say a, a developer is able to borrow sixty five percent from the bank, uh, they need to come up with the rest themselves. We live in that space, and we can give give them an additional capital sure. to help them out with their equity requirement. So what's what started to happen now? Uh, our senior lenders are starting to restrict the amount that they will lend. Um, so you 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 were seeing three years ago, four years ago, you were seeing senior lenders lending over seventy percent. There are still one or two about, but most of them have, have really scaled back. So that, on the one hand, seems to uh, to suggest that there's a lot more risk in the market, which I would agree that there probably is. Um, but in terms of being a, a, a mez and equity lender, there's actually more opportunity for us because. Um, developers can get less money from the bank. So they have a greater need now for uh, for mezzanine. And yeah, exactly. Funding. I know RBS lowered theirs from 65 to 55. So there there's an extra 10% out there for, for you to uh, to lend on. Yeah, quite. So, there's, so there is a market for our, for our products at the moment. Um, but that being said, the reason there's a market is because there's more risk in the market. So... Uh, due diligence is becoming far more um, uh, far more detailed. Uh, our conversion rates are uh, are reducing. And, what are um, they currently? Uh, <laughs> they're um, it, 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 yeah. I mean, that's it, it's it depends on what stage of the uh, appraisal process that you'd say no at. Um, but um, 
Yeah, gen- generally speaking, it's uh, it's not every loan that comes through the door. No, I'm sure it's the, far off that. Money. I was talking to another uh, lender who do equity and debt. They like to take both pieces of the pie. And over the last 12 months, they'd not accepted a single project. Yeah. So it's, it is a tougher market out there just to find the right deals that stack. Yeah. I mean, it's a... It's an interesting one because there's still a lot of money out there and interest rates are still really low. Um, but for it, it seems particularly in the property space, money is actually quite hard to come by if you're a, if you're a developer. It's not that easy to access. Um, I know you've got your your crowdfunding um, little strategy, which um, uh, yeah, which maybe you share a few of your secrets with me afterwards. Cause it could Definitely. Be quite useful. <laughs> um, but um, it, it kind of seems to me at the at the moment. I mean the the housing market like the rest of the economy goes in cycles uh, now's now's probably a time to sit on your hands uh, a little bit or at least exercise a lot of caution look i completely agree with you i haven't bought anything since may 2017 and mainly because we've got 11 10 projects in construction which is a lot for our team but also because there's just not much out there. Mm-hmm. People are paying ridiculous money for sites. And that must be something that you're seeing as well when you're appraising these sites, that mm. there's a lot of overpaying for sites at the moment. That, yeah, that, that seems to be where most people are going wrong. And that's really what's putting pressure on GDVs because we've got, we've got Brexit that's going to be affecting build cost as uh, Eastern Europeans m- may start to go home. Um, I've experienced p- p- um, some tenants of mine, funnily enough, who are builders. Um, they've moved out to move back to Poland. Um, so you're going you're gonna to have um, stress on build costs, um, stress on GDVs, given the current market. Uh, but then also, there's just so much competition for sites. And people are overpaying. And land landowners have just unrealistic expectations at the moment, probably inflated by local agents uh, suggesting that in order to gain the business are giving them inflated um, opinions of, uh, of the values of their, of their land. Um, so it's, it, it, is tr- it is tricky. I mean, I, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of prudent developers are now living in the planning gain space, uh, which I think is a good idea. Um, at, at, at the moment, but um, but ultimately, it always always comes down to you can make you, you can make a lot of money when you buy. Um, that needs to be your start point. Yeah, and even with you coming out of the 2008 downturn, yeah. you were very successful with the properties that you bought then, because as you were saying before, the properties were cheap, yeah. and you were able to. You still had cash, you still had liquidity. So yeah. if you're well positioned Completely. and solvent, yeah. you can actually turn a downturn into one of your most successful investment periods. But the, yeah, and I mean the, the key there is being solvent when that happens uh, because most people if they're if they're in the game I mean a lot of people that are in our our sort of networks in the in the property world lost a lot of money in 2008 and had they had the ready readily readily available capital lying around uh, they would have been snapping up left right and center but that just wasn't the case um if you're in the game you're exposing yourself to that risk if you pull yourself out well is there going to be a market um, shift is there going to be a downturn? Because if you're out of the game, you're not going to be making anything. Uh, so there's risk either side of it. Um, so that's a balance that the individual needs to kind of make 
make their own minds up on. And so given the weakness at the moment, are you looking to get back into development at all or will you stick with the lending? What's what's in the future for you? Yeah, I think property development was really where I, where I started and that's kind of what really excites me. Um, we've fallen into, uh, into lending um, and, it's, uh, and, it's, and it's proved a, re- a really good business. Um, I'd like to see us probably doing both alongside each other. Um, so I run my business together with my brother and he um, he's very much keen to, 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 to stay on the lending side. Um, so, there, so there may be scope in the, in the future to sort of move back into development. That's probably where I'll, I'll, I'll start to move. Um, but uh, flipping back into our earlier conversation around sport, I'm spending more and more time now um, doing things such as speaking with uh, amazing people on podcasts and, uh, and, <laughs> and presenting on stage, and, and yeah. so on. Uh, and corporate speaking now as well. So I've done quite a lot of corporate speaking around um, sports psychology and its transference into business on mental health and, uh, and, th- and th- things like that. Um, that's an area that really excites me and uh, um, fills fills that that gap in the ego from the from the end of the sports career. So um, that, that's kind of a, a little bit of a side project for me as well. Yeah, and it fits perfectly in with your psychology degree and all your experience. Uh, Richard, I'm going to ask you three quick questions. Okay. Let's see how we get on with those. <laughs> the whole idea of this podcast is that it's prolific, not perfect. Yep. What does being prolific mean to you? Um, being prolific as opposed to not perfect. Being prolific would be... I'm glad you haven't briefed me on this as well because you, then you put me on the spot. Yeah, it I've makes it to, fresh. Uh, yeah, it makes it really fresh and it's the first thing that comes to mind. Um I would say pro- being prolific is not being a perfectionist. It's just going out and doing it, going out and just getting stuff done. And I found the the more prolific that you are, the more um, the 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 more uh, more likely you are just to get into sort of like a state of flow where you're no longer you're no longer overthinking things. You're almost working on autopilot. You're just getting it done. You're just getting um, you're moving forward. Um, it's uh, certainly something that I think is uh, uh, very useful for an entrepreneur. And in um, what ways do you feel that you're prolific? What ways do I feel I'm prolific? Um, is there any any of the areas that you've sacrificed perfection just to get stuff done? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, that would probably probably be on a on, on a pretty regular basis. Um, look, if you you can. Th- Think on things until the cows come home. You just need to pick yourself up and do it. Um, get perfect later. You know, work work it out as you go along. Yeah, um, absolutely. Otherwise, you just you don't move forward, and someone else will overtake you. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, what does success look like to you? Success is uh, something I've put, a, put quite a bit of thought into. Funnily enough, most recently. Um, I used to be uh, I used to be motivated by um, money, materialistic things, and, and so on, which is kind of coming out of my twenties and into my thirties. I've realised that success actually is having the time to be able to spend with the people closest to you, your friends and your family, uh, having a nice home, having the things that you the things that you need in your life, definitely, and also a little bit of the things that you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, d- definitely, it's the the people in your life and the amount of time you're able to spend with them. 
Yeah, that's right. Richard, thank you very much for choosing to spend time with me today. It's been a really interesting podcast and look forward to having a full pint of lager with you next time. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Cheers, Nicole.